Good, good. Uh, I am excited to continue our series on Resolved. It's good to be here with you all this morning. And um, just a really quick kind of update to pick you up to speed, and then we're going to dive right into the Word. What uh, we're doing with this series is we're looking at, hey, what are the kind of most common uh, New Year's resolutions? And then how do we actually kind of take uh, the Word of God, apply them over those, and sort of expand them so that they have great, great value, not just in our own personal life, but also in the lives of others around us, and that they don't just impact us for a moment, but rather they kind of impact us throughout uh, the rest of our life and even out into eternity. And so that's what we're doing throughout this series. One of the main things that people think about during this uh, season of New Year is actually having greater kind of spiritual uh, life and vibrancy. And so they make these spiritual resolutions. So we said, hey, what would it look like to start off the first two weeks and say, here's how we actually really resolve to kind of find God in these deep ways, spiritually speaking. And so last week we looked at uh, sort of the private practices, uh, these spiritual disciplines or means of grace that we do alone by ourselves, and we focus specifically on the Word and prayer. And this week what we're doing is we're going to take uh, our corporate practices, and we're going to look specifically at worship and celebration and kind of see how they uh, interact with us to really help us uh, find God in more clear, more beautiful ways. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. We're going to be in Psalm 100 this morning. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, the ushers are going to come forward now. Uh, And if you need one, feel free to raise your hand. They would love to give you a Bible. Uh, If you do not own a Bible, would you please take and keep that? That's our gift to you. We want you to have the Word, be able to use it during the week. You can also follow along on your uh, smartphone with the YouVersion app or type this link into your browser. Those instructions are up there. But we say this every week because we mean it. We want your eyes on the Word. Uh, I truly do believe that the Word will interact with us in ways that a preacher or worship or giving honestly never can. And so we want to see the Word clearly and have it uh, interact with us while even the sermon is going on that God may speak to us in and through that, okay? As you're turning to Psalm 100, uh, I heard a stat this week that I was blown away by. So one of the biggest uh, ways that people kind of create resolutions is actually uh, through their health, right? And so uh, there's all these sites that you can like put your resolutions on and people can kind of hold you accountable to them uh, or doctors uh, can kind of check up on you. And so there's all this public data about what our resolutions are, at least from a health perspective. So one doctor actually actually took all of these different resolutions that people were posting on these public boards, and uh, he began to analyze that data. And what he found out was that if just 10% of inactive people meet their health and exercise goals, then the life expectancy of America would increase by six years. Dag, right? Like, that's unbelievable, you know? And I was looking at that, I was like, man, that's crazy. And I thought, man, how crazy, how true is that? What if, similarly, just 10% of people in the kingdom of God met their spiritual goals? How unbelievably more powerful would the kingdom of God be, right? And so that's what we want to do is we want to say, how can we resolve? What does it look like to uh, resolve to really try to meet these goals, to meet with God, to interact with God? Because we do not serve a God who is distant. We do not serve a God who is uh, kind of off in the distance, not wanting to meet with us. No, we serve a God that is 
is very present. He wants to interact with us. In fact, the scriptures are clear. If you knock, the door shall be opened. If you seek, you shall find. James 4 says, if you draw near to God, then he will draw near to you. And so what these practices are, these means of grace, are a means by which we experience the grace of God as we draw near to God and really posture ourselves to receive from him in a way. Man, what if we just kept our spiritual health goals? What would our personal lives look like? What would the kingdom look like if we did that? And so that's what we want to do as a body together, to seek to apply these and to think about them collectively. Now, corporately, okay, last week we looked at private uh, uh, practices. Corporate practices, there are so many reasons to kind of gather together, right? You can build one another up in love, the scriptures say. We can serve one another with the gifts that we have together. We can uh, kind of grow to know God more deeply as I know one part of God and you know something else about God. Then, man, you can begin to think about him. There are all these different things that we do. Discipleship, these individual times to spur one another on uh, toward love, toward good deeds. But today I want to think about three ways uh, that the body, kind of corporate gathering, can help us if we practice uh, these on a consistent and on a regular basis. When you look at worship and when you look at uh, celebration, there are really three things that we can get to do together when we come together. One of them is that the corporate gathering reminds us about who God is, right? Not necessarily his work, just his very character. Man, who is God? Another thing it does is it reminds us of what God has done. We proclaim the works of God. We talk about the goodness of God together, and we realize we don't just serve a distant God. We serve an active and a present God, and this stirs up in us when we communicate about what God has done, but it also points us toward a future hope that we have in Christ, and we get to remind each other this world is not all that there is, but rather there is so much more, and this happens most plainly not when we are alone by ourselves, but whether when we are together proclaiming God collectively. And so Psalm 100 is where we're going to be, and I want you to continue to think about these three things and how it interacts with us corporately. Psalm 100, I'm going to read the whole psalm here. So beginning in verse 1, it says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Now notice how the community is coming together, right? This isn't being done in private, but it's in public. And because of this, the psalmist is actually drawing deeper with God. Collectively, as a body, they're remembering who God is, right? In fact, in verse 3, it says, Know that the Lord, He is God. Like, can I get a witness that sometimes you just need to remember that God is God? And this happens corporately, right? Saying, hey, remember that God is God. He, he is who he says he is. He's not just God, but he's also a creator, it says here, right? You go down to verse 5, and it says that he's a loving God, a covenantal God, God who keeps his promises. His faithfulness will endure throughout all generations. Why? Because he is a faithful God. Well, this is happening as we are gathered together and reminding each other about the goodness of God. And so one of the reasons that you gather together 
corporately in worship is to literally just remember who God is. Because unless y'all are like superhuman Christians somehow, like I frequently forget about the goodness of God. But when I come together, when I hear the saints of God singing the praises of God about the goodness of God, I'm reminded about who my God is. And that drives me that much deeper with God and propels me out to love him that much more fully. This is what God has designed us for. This is why the gathering is so important. You know, some of us may remember different things about God than others. Some of us may remember some of the facts about God, like what he's done. Some of us may remember his goodness, right? Some of us may remember, man, our God is king and Lord, we need to respect, to honor, to obey him. Others may remember that he's father, he's husband, he's brother. We have this relationship with him. Some may remember his goodness, his grace, but as we come together collectively, we're able to reflect on the many different uh, facets of God and who he is. And like holding up a fine diamond, we turn it together and we each shine light into the goodness of God and that spurs us on to love him that much more. This is what the body does. This is why it's important to gather together, right? This is uh, so important to remember who God is. Secondly, though, the text also shows that collectively, as they gather together, it helped them remember what God has done, right? It says that he made them to be his people there in verse 3. And so they remember that, man, we were once not a people, but now we are a people, and they're collectively remembering that. Not only a people, but they are now the sheep of his fold, right? What this means is that he's brought us into his pasture, his flock, which means we'll be the there one day with him in the even greater courts of heaven because he is now our great and good shepherd, but is drawing us in and we're reminding each other of that, right? That like, hey, you weren't a sheep that was like, you know what? I'm gonna go find God and eat green pasture over here. No, he brought you into the fold, right? He came out and he found you. You were the one that was lost. He went out, found you and brought you in. And when we remind each other of that, it stirs up our affections for our king. And so we remember not just who God is, but also what he has done. And he often uses the body to help us remember that. This is this unbelievably kind of undeserved gift the body is to us. But thirdly, it also points us toward a future hope that we have, a hope in Christ, right? How long does God's love endure according to this text? Forever, right? Forever is a really long time, you know? In fact, forever is such a long time that it actually extends past time, right? This is eternal. It's not that if you keep the Ten Commandments, then God's love endures. It's not if you are a good enough person or God's love endures because it's his character and it's who he is. And this is your hope that you will have this love of God forever. If you are in his fold and you are in his fold and you will be in his fold forever. And we remind each other of this, this future hope of Christ, right? That if you believe in God, man, his love will extend to you forever. His faithfulness will last throughout all of the generations that exist. He will still be faithful to you because this is who our God is. And we remember that when we're in community because, hello, you heard about the private practices last week. You probably went home, tried to read the Bible, and then on Wednesday you didn't read and we're like, oh, no, I feel so bad, right? And then all of a sudden what happens is we start thinking, oh, maybe God doesn't love us as much or whatever. And we get to come back around the community and say, that's not true, right? Your flesh wants to lie to you, but God is faithful even when we are faithless. This is the God that we serve. His faithfulness extends even past whatever we may do, and we remind each other of that over and over 
over and over again the hope that is ours in Christ. And so this is the beauty of coming together, that we get to point each other to this truth over and over and over again. And there's really, honestly, nothing quite like the gathering together of the people of God to remind us of the goodness of God. This is why you hear me say often, I need you, and you need me, and we need each other right? Because I need you to remind me about how good God is. Like, just transparently, I came in here today, and during the second song, I was not thinking about the goodness of God. I was thinking about all these other things, like my daughter got snot on my shirt, and I was trying to get it out before I came up here, and then I couldn't fix this little stupid thing, and I just, I wasn't thinking about God. But at some point during one of the songs, or during the second song, I forgot which uh, a line it was, but it's like the, the volume level in this room just like went up like four decibels, right? That's not a lot, like 40 decibels or whatever. And I literally felt myself get lifted in a way because you were reminding me of the goodness of God. So I need you to remind me about how great God is and you need me to remind you about how great God is and we need each other to remind each other about the goodness of God. This is the beauty of community and why we should not collectively neglect it. You see the we throughout the section there in Psalm 100. You see the courts, they're gathering together in the courts of God. And what happens is, is that when we gather together, this, friends, increases our joy. It increases our joy. It increases uh, our remembrance of the goodness of God, right? Why? Well, because God's people were made to be a celebratory people, a joy-filled people. This is what God has designed us for in a lot of ways. When we think about what he has done and who he is and the hope that we have in Christ, it can't do anything but begin to stir up an affection and a joy in us that uh, transcends maybe our situations that may be right before us, and it catapults us into this deeper joy in a lot of ways. And this is why actually one of the disciplines one of the means of grace is actually joy or celebration because we have to actually actively try to practice it because we are a people that have a disposition toward negativity rather than a disposition toward our joy in Christ. We become a people that are so easily uh, 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 sort of wrapped up with the cares of this world. Anxiety creeps upon our hearts so easily. We become a people that are so dissatisfied in a way that we have to work at remembering the goodness of who God is and remembering what he has done and what is going to come that it may produce a hope in us that transcends even the brokenness of this world. Even in our own sin, we're, we're literally dispo- dispositioned, right, to be a negative in nature. And I'm not kind of saying, oh, let's be happy-go-lucky and like a good, feel-good message. That's not what I'm saying at all, right? Happiness is one thing. Joy transcends your emotions, And so joy is so much deeper. That's what the Lord is wanting to stir up. And that is something we have to learn to practice to celebrate the goodness of God and what is to come, what is ours in Christ. And community actually helps us to remember this. It helps us to rejoice. It stirs this up in us, right? That there's a present reality that may be sad, but there's a future reality that is forever hopeful. And we point each other to that often. You know, you were made to worship and to do it joyfully, which is why nobody really has to teach you how to worship, right? Like you've never went and learned worship 101 in seventh grade, right? Like that wasn't a part of your skill, but you literally know how to do it, right? I know I said no sports references this week, but I can't help it, okay? 
thinking about uh, even like the national championship game on Monday, college national championship, right? Like I ain't even a Clemson fan, but when I was watching them like beat Alabama, like not put them in timeout, like beat them, right? Like I was like, I was excited, okay? And it stirred up in me this like anticipation because that's what you were designed to do, right? To beat Alabama, I'm just kidding, right? (laughs) You were designed to have this joy, this joy that uh, stirs up, and nobody has to really teach you that. It's hardwired in your DNA to be a, a cheerful worshiper in a way. And so maybe for you, it's hearing a really, really good song, right, that produces kind of like tearful, uh, joyful tears in your eyes. Or maybe for you, it's seeing like a really good movie in which you see the artistry of a certain actress or a producer, and, and you're just moved by that, right? Maybe you're like a foodie, and for you, it's eating really good food, and then you have evangelize everyone around you about how awesome that food is, right? Whatever it is, you were literally made to worship, and you actually do it naturally. Nobody's ever taught you how to do that. This is just something that kind of comes out. You were designed by God to enjoy and to celebrate good things, but hello, we have the greatest thing in our God, and this is why it is supposed to be celebratory, joy-filled, for in Him is where all goodness actually lies. All these other things, though they may be good, are only faint shadows of the reality that we have in Christ. And when we remind each other of that, it should stir up a celebration in our hearts. But it so often doesn't, right? Because we don't think about the reality of who God is much. And we forget to reflect on the goodness of God, right? In fact, part of the reason why you are such a worshiper in football is because you actually practice the ways in which you are supposed to celebrate. You literally practice the spiritual discipline of celebration with football. So think about it like this, right? Maybe you enjoy your team or lay this on anything. Maybe an artist, an album's about to come out, a football game's about to happen, whatever it is, and you begin to anticipate this coming, right? In fact, maybe during the week you hop on ESPN and you read some articles and you read some stats and you're preparing yourself to meet with that uh, thing at that moment to literally worship it in a way. And then the game comes, right, and you're celebrating and every bad thing that happens, you feel the weight of it, but every good thing that happens, it kind of lifts you up in a way. Even if it's not the game is won, we won it all, but like even just simple things like a seven-yard run, you're like, man, yeah, that's right, we might win this game. You're literally practicing celebration, which is why we should be joyful even in the smallest things about our God. For when you come in here and you see somebody that maybe you didn't really get along with a year year ago, but today you realize, man, there's been a lot of growth in that person's life. It may only be a seven-yard gain, but that means our God is winning, right? And this is what we get to do, right? Now, contrary to football, where your team might lose, you know that your God will never lose, and so you're actually worshiping what you know is going to end up as a victory for you in the end. But in football, once again, let's just say you're, you're worshiping, boom, and then all of a sudden they win the game, And then what do you start doing? You start anticipating about what's next. Like, man, maybe we can win the national championship next year, says every Longhorn fan ever, right? And so this is what you begin to do. You practice the discipline of celebration. You prepare yourself for it. You are engaged once you're in it. And then you look back and reflect and look ahead once it's done. This is what you were designed to do. You do it naturally, but we forget to do it and apply that when it comes to God and who he is. And this is why it's important that we remind each other of that. You think about who God is and what he has done. You kind of privately maybe even read the statistics, read the ESPN article about our God, right? 
follow the analogy, right? You think of, you prepare your heart for him so that when you meet with him, your emotions, your thoughts, your ideas are already stirred up and engaged that you may celebrate the win, look back at what God has done, look forward later, and this will catapult you throughout life for your soul was designed for this, friends. We just often miss it and we put it in the wrong places, right? And so this is what the psalmist is doing. In fact, in that psalm, it says, enter into his presence with singing or with thanksgiving, right? You're supposed to already be coming in, already worshipful on your heart because you've been preparing yourself for that in a way. We're anticipating God to move. And then when we see him moving, we respond. So many of us, we don't feel joy in worship. There's no celebration because we're not anticipating God to move. And so you're not looking for him when he is moving. It'd be like turning on a football game and watching two teams that you don't care about at all. Not a lot is going to produce joy in you, even if it's a really good game. If you're not ready for God to move, if you're not looking for him to move in small ways, not much is going to produce joy in you, even if it's a really good game, right? Even if it's a really good, even if God is moving, you're not going to see it. And so this is what we do. We prepare ourselves. We think about God. This is why the private practices and the corporate practices really do go hand in hand in a lot of ways. And then collectively, we point each other toward God in ways that we couldn't by ourselves. You know, we desire to be a joy-filled people because we do indeed serve a joyful God. This isn't just something he put in us, but he lacks. Our God himself is joy-filled. In fact, there's a passage that I really, really love because it's often misquoted uh, in that it says that, hey, the angels in heaven have a party. They sing, they dance when one sinner repents. But that's not what Luke 15, 10 says. It says, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Who's doing the singing? The angels? Or is it before the angels that singing is happening? In fact, if you go back and you look at those parables, it's the man who found his 99 or his one sheep that was lost. It's the woman who finds her one coin. That is a picture of God looking for those who was lost. And it's that person that's rejoicing. It's God who's rejoicing before the angels. God is a rejoicing God that longs to sing over you and rejoice over you because he is joy-filled. He is celebratory. He wants to throw a party. In fact, the first thing we do when we get to heaven is we sit down, we have this huge feast, and Jesus uh, pressed the wine and prepared the meal and we come and we eat wine or eat wine that too we drink wine and we eat a meal that Jesus has prepared because we were designed for celebration and in the kingdom this is what we get and our God wants to celebrate over us in a lot of ways and so even man if you're not a Christian or you've been kind of like I don't know if I can approach God like God wants you to approach him he wants to be joy filled over you he's not waiting for you to change or angry or arms folded he's saying come on into the fold right he wants to sing with rejoicing over you. In Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, here's your Zephaniah reference for the year, right? There's another one that's like that. It says, He, Lord, your God, is in your midst. He's amongst us. He's not distant. He's active. He's present. And the your there is plural. So it's when we gather together that God is in our midst. The Bible says where two or three are gathered, there I will be also. And so when we gather together, he's in our midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice, be full of joy over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. This is our God, right? He is a joy-filled God. We serve a cheerful, a celebratory God. God, which is why we long to have cheer-filled celebration even in our lives. We just forget that it can be found most greatly in our God. 
and we look for it in all these other things. This is why Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice in Philippians 4. Like he commands it because it's hard for us to do. We forget, we don't reflect about the goodness of who God is. But community will often help us to do that because as we point to these truths together collectively, as we sing about the goodness of God together collectively, man, it stirs up our affections and it helps us think about God and who he is. We even see in Psalm 100, it says, serve the Lord with gladness, right? What that's not saying is, you better be happy when you serve the Lord, right? Like your mama used to tell you, like, you better be happy, right? That's not what's happening there. What it's saying is that, hey, look, when you serve the Lord, gladness will come out of your hearts. In fact, if you go to John chapter 15, uh, verses 10 through 11, I love, love, love this section. Jesus is leaving his disciples here, and he says this in verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So obey me. Do what I tell you to do. Why? These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. God is for your joy, friends, for your celebration. In fact, the commandments of God are not burdensome, but they are meant to produce joy in your life. This is why when we sin, we feel it great against our soul in such a way, because even though sin may give us a momentary satisfaction, it doesn't give us a joy that drills deep and anchors us and roots us no matter what may be happening in our life. God is for that sort of joy. Maybe the reason you feel anxiety or pressure or depression is maybe you're not rooting yourself deep enough into the beauty and the goodness of God. Now listen, there are medical things, I get that, but a lot of times if we would just look to God more, think about what he's done and what's going to happen in us, man, man, the power that that can have in our life will be powerful. And when we obey God, when we do what he calls us to do, our joy will begin to get stirred up. God is for your joy in so many powerful ways. This is why the great Christian thinker and scholar and early African church father, St. Augustine, he says this, the Christian should be an alleluia from head to foot. Every single part of us worshiping God and who he is, right? All of us active in the engagement of God. And we often do this when we draw in together from, for community, where the word is taught and our hearts are reminded about the truth of God, where the word is sung and then it carries with us after we leave and it reminds us about the beauty of God throughout the week, where service is done, where you are encouraged in ways that you may not be able to encourage yourself, where the gifts come together and they exercise that you may see the power of God. Maybe somebody has a a word, a prophetic word you're supposed to put over your life. Or maybe there's healing and you see God's power. Or maybe it's just through the simple act of communion, but you remember the goodness of God. All of these elements happen when we gather together and God has designed it this way that you may be reminded of God and who he is. Community is important and where it's being done right, celebration occurs, friends. This is what the scriptures line up over and over and over again. God wants to produce joy in you. In fact, flip over 50 Psalms forward to Psalm 150. In Psalm 150, we see kind of the pinnacle of this in a lot of ways. This is the last psalm of the Psalter. And it sort of almost ascends us above the earth through the clouds, and it has us look over everything, right? This is this. It says, Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in the mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. 
Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Firstly, notice this is not being done privately in your car while you're listening to Caleb, right? There's nothing wrong with that. Well. If you want something better than Caleb, holla at your boy. All right, I got some music, all right? But, right, there's nothing wrong with doing that privately, right? But this is done corporately. Notice how every instrument and everything that has breath is praising God. Every part of the body is active in worship, all doing it with joy, all doing it with celebration. You can see it even from all the exclamation points that are littered throughout this. It looks like one of my emails, how many exclamation points there are in that, right? Like, man, over and over and over again, we're lifting up God, And so the breath that has the horn, right, or the lips that give forth the praise, the the tongue that shouts the praise of God, or the fingers that are on the harp, right, or the hand that is using the tambourine, or the feet that are dancing. Like, listen, I know some of us grew up in a conservative kind of church background, and it's okay. For you, dancing may look like this. Man, and worship God, yo. Like, that's awesome, right? I grew up a little bit more charismatic, and so for me, uh, worshiping was actually dancing, right? In fact, we had a song, when I think about the goodness and what he's done for me, I think about his goodness and how he set me free, I want to dance, 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 yeah, (laughs) right? Literally, the next one is like, I want to run, 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 you're like, right? And man, it's okay, whatever it looks like, but every single part of you is engaged in worship, right? This is what God has designed in such a way. And so, man, for you, this may be dancing, and that's awesome, because we actually need your model of sort of reflection and almost humility and a posture with God like that. But for others, maybe it's dancing, whatever it is, all of it is done with joy. And as we see the body singing together, the exclamation points start coming in our worship songs. And this is what God is designed for, joyful worship, right? This is what God wants from us. We see it all throughout the Old and New Testament, over and over and over again, the power of worship. In fact, Martin Luther, who was a a famous uh, 16th century reformer, he says this, he says, At home, in my own house, there is no warmth or vigor in me. But in the church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart and it breaks its way through. I love that, right? Privately, sometimes I can't stir up that fire enough. But man, when somebody else comes and they start stirring up the fire in my heart, it breaks its way through and I feel the power of God, the joy of God, the peace of God, whatever he may be trying to give us. And this is so true. I feel it so often, as I just mentioned, even at song number two today, I feel it breaking through in my heart. We need each other. This is why worship and corporate gathering are so vital to our existence. Yes, God wants you to spend alone time with him, but yes, he wants you to be gathered together as well. There are two wings of the airplane, and if you don't have one of the wings, hello, your airplane is doing very hot, right? We need both of them to be flying well, right? And so this is what we were designed to do in a lot of ways. In fact, I love Isaiah chapter 6. Flip there with me real quick. In Isaiah chapter 6, this is Isaiah getting this picture of God, right? And I love this because here, beginning in verse 3, we actually see what the angels are doing. So it's not just that God has designed his people to do that, you and I, but we even see the host of heaven, the angels of heaven, kind of practicing exactly what we're talking about here. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, it says, and one, this is a seraphim, an angel, called 
to another, right? They're not even singing to God right here. They're calling to another, and they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It's almost as if when they're calling out to one another, they're reminding each other about the goodness of who God is, and it's like it elevates their worship in a way where they almost get louder and louder, and all of a sudden the thresholds start shaking. I don't know what that means, but Isaiah was pretty scared, right? Right? He was like, oh, shoot, I've seen the Lord, it says. What happens? They're ushering in that presence. They're reminding not just Isaiah, but even each other about the goodness of who God is. And as they celebrate the power of God, the exclamation point at the end of that as well shows you that the original Hebrew was a, a, a statement of power. It was this a, 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 a statement of exhilaration even in a way. And we see the power of God, right? And then in verse 8, what happens is Isaiah goes out and he impacts the world around him. God says, who shall I send? He says, hey, send me. He felt this confidence, this power, this boldness. Why? Because he had just met with God as he was led into worship by the people of God, or in this case, the angels of God. And now he feels called, ready for mission, ready to go out and to impact the world. This happens when we collectively remind each other that the whole earth is full of the glory of the Lord, that our God is holy, holy, holy. Over all the angels of the armies of heaven, this is our God. And then it catapults us into worship or it moves us to conviction. Isaiah was like, shoot, I'm not like this, right? I'm unclean. Gosh, even the people around me are unclean. If you follow that story, they come, they anoint him. Hey, God, no, he has blessed you. He has taken your sin away, and then he's ready for mission. We get to do this collectively. It spurs mission. It compels godly conviction. It helps us remember it. It takes our sorrows at times and turns them into joy. And this is what happens when we gather together so often. The gifts build. The word secures. It challenges. It reminds us. It, it moves us to worship in so many powerful and beautiful ways. In fact, this is why we feel the temptation not to gather, friends. Like, don't you realize how so often you feel this laziness all of a sudden on Sunday morning that sometimes you can punch it in the face, but for whatever reason, it's just hard to gather, right? Or you all of a sudden, you get super, super busy during community group time, right? Or during your discipleship time, why it's so much easier to talk about the new features of the iPhone instead of talking about the Word of God and actually stirring each other to life. Hello, is that just me? I ain't get no amens or head shakes. Y'all must be awesome, right? But for me, I am terrible at this at times. It is so easy to me to feel the temptation not to remind my brothers and sisters or to let them remind me about the goodness of our God. It's so often I'm even wanting to neglect the gathering. Well, this is exactly the reason why Satan attacks it, right? All throughout Ephesians, we see the importance of unity. In fact, all throughout the New Testament, there are sections of the New Testament where it says, it is better for you to be wronged and unified than to be right but disunified. All of us want justice, right? But the scripture is like, there's something more important than justice. It's the unity, the gathering together of the saints. And so that's why so often, even the tiniest thing Satan wants to take and drive a wedge between you and your community that you would no longer be able to see God collectively or together. Look, the church is messed up and full of a bunch of broken, sinful people, but that's exactly the reason we need you in it to remind us of the grace and the goodness of God and to point us toward hope and to draw us back to unity. This is what Satan is trying to destroy. 
And see, all of these things, friends, we see our beautiful, beautiful example in the person and work of Jesus. See, in Jesus, we see him with this corporate, joy-filled celebration. In fact, Jesus entered into this earth in celebration. In fact, in Luke chapter 2, go to that text. This is pronouncing Jesus' birth. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great, what, joy, celebration that will be for all the people, not just privately, not just y'all. This is going to be for everyone, and it's going to produce joy in everyone. As Jesus completed his ministry, one of the last things he said to his disciples, we just read, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that you may be full, right? In fact, in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 through 19, Jesus uh, proclaims one of the most powerful statements, but it's the opening statement of his whole ministry. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He took this text from a text that was speaking directly about Israel's jubilee, the year of of jubilee, the year of joy, of celebration. And Jesus says, yeah, 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 that's me, right? I am joy. I am celebration. I will come and see the things that will make you happy. I will actually produce that forever. Like if I came in here today and I said, hey, y'all, like I know a lot of y'all are poor. And uh, once you leave tomorrow, you're actually going to get a million dollars in your bank account. You'd be like, I want to dance, 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 right? And all of a sudden, joy would be produced. Why? Because, man, the poor became rich. Well, Jesus is saying, this is my whole ministry, but not just in this temporary earthly means, but in a far greater spiritual realm where you were spiritually poor, you will now be rich in me. Jesus was full of this celebration and wanted to bring joy to the people. But we also see our atonement when we fail at practicing this. See, on the cross of Christ, Jesus was broken and he was a man of sorrows. You're just saying that, right? A man full of sorrows. Why? Because all joy was stripped, all celebration was God as he gone, as he cried out to his God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it wasn't just God, but it was all of the community together. They all, right, left him, it says. Why? Because that's what we deserve, friends. We deserve to have no one around us and no joy in our hearts. But Jesus assumed that upon himself, that he may give us full fellowship, not just with him, but with the people of God forever. See, our God is a triune God in and of himself. He exists in corporate community. And that's why he draws us into community. And that's where we find a lot of joy in is in community. He faced sorrow that you one day will never face it again, friends. This is what you were designed for. This is what we remind each other of. This is what we should point to. And so will we be a community that does that? Will we be a community that reminds each other of the goodness of God? Will we not neglect to meet together? And when we do, will we point each other to the goodness of Christ? Once again, I'm not talking about fake joy, y'all, right? I know it's hard sometimes. Man, let us mourn with those who are mourning. The scripture's really clear, but joy travels deeper than your emotions or than your situations. This is what we're pointing to, this hope in Christ, y'all. I want to end with a story I think is a good illustration of this. I was watching something this week. It was uh, these videos of these um, soldiers returning home after the Vietnam War. 
And so uh, they're there and they're returning and you see all these like wives uh, and these kids running up to meet their husbands. And what I found out about the video I was watching was that these were actually prisoners of war that the wives did not know if they were alive or not. And so three years goes by, four years goes by, five, six years goes by, and they are unsure if their husband is dead or alive. Their kids have gone from one to seven, right, two to eight. That means they don't recognize their father. The father doesn't recognize that kid, you know. But then what happens is these wives get a call, and they get uh, this uh, 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 agent that says, hey, your husband's alive, and he's coming home. In fact, he'll be home in two weeks. In fact, the government paid for all of these wives, their tickets to go out to San Diego to meet their husbands. They said, we'll pay for it, just be there, right? And that's where you see all of this joy-filled celebration as the wives run to meet their husbands and they see them for the first time in all these years, not knowing if he was dead or alive. Man, there he is, right? But rewind two weeks to when, you know, they got that call. Hey, be in San Diego at such and such a time. Nothing really changed in those two weeks, Right? Nothing changed except for what? News. They got news that the person that you thought may have been dead, you were unsure, he's not dead. He's alive. And in just two weeks, you're going to see him. And what began to happen, there began to be this joy-filled hope that began to produce in these women as they waited those two weeks knowing that soon and very soon they're going to get to behold their husband and he will kiss them and, and he will be with them at the breakfast table with their kids and they will finally be with their husband again after all these years, right? Nothing changed except for news, friends. News changed everything. And I think very, very clearly that for those women, their exaltation will be in proportion to how much they anticipated the return of their husband. Shocking with that? Their joy will be into proportion for how much they were anticipating and waiting for him. And when that news finally hit, that joy burst open. Friends, our news has already hit. The God that we thought may have been dead, he ain't. He's alive and he's reigning forevermore and our joy will be into proportion for our waiting and our hopeful arrival that he will come and I am telling you friends, he will take you home and all your sorrows will be gone and the man that you thought was dead will be alive and all the things you hope for will be fulfilled soon and very soon. This is what we gather to remind each other of that. Let us be a community that does that. Amen? Amen. Hey, I love you guys. Let's pray. Father, thank you for coming. Thank you for being the God who is faithful. Thank you that you did not save us to be alone or isolated like Satan, but you saved us into a community like you, Father, you, Son, you, Spirit. You drew us in. So God, I pray that you would help us to continue to meet together, to stir up one another God, where the enemy wants to make us angry at things that are silly or divide us over things that are small or leave us to forget the goodness of who you are, would we be able to remind each other of that truth over and over and over again? And would you allow us as a community, God, to be a joy-filled community as we think about the goodness of who you are? God, so many of the Psalms start with sorrow, but then once they think about the Lord and the goodness of who he is and proclaim him in community, it turns to joy at the end. Why? Because we see you are good. You're not dead. You're alive. Help us remember that, God.
Lord, I pray for everybody in here who may not know you as God, that they would feel your welcome arms. You want them to come in. You want to meet with them. You want to be there, God. Friends, if you surrender your life to Jesus and say, not my life, yours, God, I want to be in this family, then you get in. <laughs> That's it. It's wild. It feels scandalous almost because this is how much God wants you in. No barriers, right? Just self-surrender. So God, I pray that would be all of us. And for those of us who have surrendered, would you keep us close now and forever? We pray this in your very beautiful name, Jesus. Amen.